there's an episode of The Twilight Zone. Man, how many of my sermons have started that way? Too many, and yet not enough. There's an episode of The Twilight Zone called 22 about a woman who was overwhelmed by stress and work that she actually ended up in a hospital and began having a recurring nightmare. Here's the opening narration by Rod Serling. This is Miss Liz Powell. She's a professional dancer, and she's in the hospital as a result of overwork and nervous fatigue. And at this moment, we have just finished walking with her in a nightmare. In a moment, she'll wake up and we'll remain at her side. The problem here is that both Miss Powell and you will reach a point where it might be difficult to decide which is reality and which is nightmare. A problem uncommon, perhaps, but rather peculiar to the Twilight Zone. And so this woman, Liz Powell, is hospitalized for exhaustion, and she keeps suffering this vivid recurring nightmare in which she wakes up in her hospital room and takes the elevator down to the basement of the hospital, to the hospital morgue, which is room 22. And as she's standing before the doors that go into room 22, a nurse suddenly emerges from the room and says, room for one more, honey. Liz screams, flees to the elevator, and the dream ends. And this keeps happening over and over. She goes to the basement of the hospital, and a nurse pops out of the hospital morgue, room 22, and says, room for one more, honey. Liz is eventually discharged from the hospital, and she goes to the airport, buys her ticket, and is told that she will be on flight number 22. This freaks her out, but she crosses the tarmac to board her plane, and as she climbs the stairs, she reaches the top, and a stewardess, who is the nurse from her nightmares, emerges from the cabin of the plane, and the stewardess says, room for one more, honey. Screaming, Liz stumbles down the stairs and races back to the terminal. Concerned airport staff try to calm her, and outside the window, Flight 22 taxis to the runway, takes off, and then explodes in midair. Closing narration by Rod Serling. Miss Elizabeth Powell, professional dancer. Hospital diagnosis, acute anxiety brought on by overwork and fatigue. Prognosis, with rest and care, she'll probably recover. But the cure to some nightmares is not to be found in known medical journals. You look for it under potions for bad dreams to be found in the twilight zone. It may be today. It may be tomorrow. It may be next week. It may be next year. But at some point in the future, you are going to go through such immense trials and sufferings that you begin to think that God has abandoned you. Acute anxiety brought on by your circumstances. Life for you will feel like a nightmare. Wave after wave of suffering, life will feel like a bad dream. And you may even begin to entertain the thought that God has deserted you and that he doesn't love you anymore. And you may even begin to think that you are losing your mind. Well, the truth that we'll see in God's word today rings true. Whatever we are going through in life, even if life feels like a recurring nightmare, 
We may not always know what is going on in our life or why God is allowing what is going on in our life, especially when it feels like a bad dream, but we can always have hope and say, Jesus loves me, this I know. It's such a simple phrase and such a simple song, but there is an ocean of meaning in those words. We celebrate Advent because of those words. We come into God's white, hot, holy presence because of those words. Everything about the Christian life hangs on those words. Everything that we are hangs on those words. Everything that we love about God hangs on those words. Everything about Advent hangs on those words. And listen, if you're looking to get a tattoo sometime in the near future, that would make some pretty sweet ink to get tattooed on you. Whatever font you choose, just make sure the spelling is correct. (laughs) Jesus loves me, this I know. And that's exactly what we're going to see in Mark's gospel today. So turn to Mark chapter 15. Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. Because it's all over the Bible. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's exactly where we need to turn our attention this morning. Turn our attention right now to the Bible, to God's Word. So Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 16. Hear the Word of the Lord. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. After Jesus endured the horrible scourging that we looked at last week, he is led away and the Roman soldiers begin mocking him. They put a purple robe on him and made a a crown of thorns and began mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they began hitting Jesus with a reed over and over. 
and spitting on him, spitting in his face and bowing down before him. Such a humiliating and degrading scene and all done by people Jesus loved, sinners that Jesus loved. I mean, it's one thing to be mocked and ridiculed, but to be mocked and ridiculed when you are a dying man in your last few hours, that's cold. And yet Jesus in this moment is loving these people and giving his life for them. I mean, who does that? What kind of God are we dealing with here? One who has mercy on and compassion for his enemies, even when they are laughing in his face as he dies for them. It's incredible. I mean, if you cross me, my nature is to attack. I'm not going to let you get away with hurting me. I'm not going to let you hurl insults at me. I will fire back. But Jesus, what does he do? He dies for his enemies, even when they mock him as he is dying. This should make us bow down in adoration. Who is this king? What kind of God are we dealing with here? Not one that we would create. Not one that acts like we do. And so they led Jesus away to crucify him. And by this point, he was too weak to carry the cross beam of his cross. And they compel Simon of Cyrene to carry it for Jesus. And notice they offer Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, likely to dull the pain. But Jesus refused. And then they crucified Jesus around 9 a.m. along with two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And that's when the mocking and the ridicule picked up pace and continued. It's been nothing but mocking and ridicule and accusation for the past 12 hours or so for Jesus. His last day on earth was nonstop mocking, people laughing in his face, people spitting in his face. How would you like to spend your last hours on earth having people make fun of you and spit in your face? Ridicule. I'm spitting as I preach. Nothing new there. Ridicule, insult, accusations, people saying mean things like, he saved others, but he can't save himself. You're no savior. Boom, roasted. He said he could tear down and rebuild the temple in three days, and yet he can't get off the cross. Boom, roasted. Everyone that passed by Jesus made fun of him. They roasted him. They would wag their heads and mock him. The crowds mocked Jesus, the chief priests mocked Jesus, the soldiers mocked Jesus, even the two thieves on either side of him mocked Jesus. And all of this, of course, is Jesus fulfilling Psalm 22. Everything that is happening in this chapter was already recorded by David in Psalm 22. Listen to David and see how Jesus is fulfilling Psalm 22 on the cross as he is mocked, as he is crucified. Psalm 22, verses 12 through 18. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. 
They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Jesus was surrounded by people mocking him as he's crucified. His hands and feet were pierced. They even cast lots for his clothing, just as David predicted in Psalm 22. The nightmare that David himself is really experiencing in Psalm 22, Jesus is fulfilling on the cross at a much deeper level. And so all that's happening here in Mark's gospel is Jesus in this moment fulfilling Psalm 22. And it continues. Look at Mark 15 beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And so around noon, darkness came over the whole land. And for three hours from noon until 3 p.m., there was darkness over the land as Jesus hung on the cross. A sign of judgment, God's judgment on Jesus for our sin. And when Jesus uttered his last cry and breathed his last breath, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, signifying that the way was made open for sinners once and for all to come into God's presence. We now have access to God's presence. Amazing. I love how Tim Keller puts it. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. This is the kind of access we have, Grace, as believers who are in union with Christ. 3 a.m. in the morning, I'm thirsty. Can you get me a cup of water, please, daddy, kind of access? That's what Mark means in verse 38 when he tells us that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, the veil that was only touched by a priest and moved out of the way so he could enter once a year, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom, and we now have access to our Heavenly Father 
anytime we want. We can wake him up, if you will, at 3 a.m. in the morning, and he won't be grumpy. Because of Jesus, we don't have to approach God like the floors were recently waxed and we're wearing socks. That's how many of us approach God. As if the floors around his throne were just waxed and we're wearing socks. We better move slowly. No, we can approach him confidently. Why? Because of Jesus. Because we have been declared righteous by God. That's what gives us access into God's presence. We are covered with Jesus' righteousness when we approach him. This should make us bow down in adoration. This should make us bow down in adoration because we have all sinned horribly this week. We've all done things this week that if we put them on the screen for everyone to see, this place would be empty next week because none of us would want to come back and show our faces. People like us can come into God's presence and we're welcome. We belong there. Jesus was stripped naked so we could be clothed with his righteousness. And now, clothed with his righteousness, we are safe around his throne. We don't belong there on our own. We have no right to be there on our own. Our own works do not gain us access. We are there because he was stripped bare and suffered crucifixion for us. His public shame frees us to approach God with no shame. So understand this, Grace. You have nothing to fear because you are safe before the Father in the Son. You are safe before your heavenly Father in the Son. And that's why Jesus is a great high priest because he is the holy Son of God and he offers mercy and grace to sinners like us. You expect him to offer lightning bolts, don't you? You expect him to offer a sword and to strike us down. You would expect him to obliterate us with his white, hot holiness and glory. But instead, what does he offer? Mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. Imagine that. Listen, God is really, 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 really slow to anger. He is not touchy and explosive like us. That's how I am. Touchy and explosive. He is not touchy and explosive like us. He does not fly off the handle. He is not trigger happy, nor is he itching to bring the hammer down. We have to drive him to that. Instead, his spontaneous heart is to love us. His knee-jerk reaction is to love us. The Bible is very clear about this. God is not slow to love. He's slow to anger. 
It is his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love that has the engine running, always ready to go in a moment's notice. In contrast, his anger has to be worked up within him. The good news of the gospel is that there's mercy when you blow it. And someone needs to hear that this morning. And there's grace when you need it most. And there's mercy when you've sinned for the umpteenth time. And there's grace when you feel like you just can't go on. And there's mercy when you break your promises. And there's grace when you are at your worst. Advent is all about the Son of God coming to people like us so that people like us can come to God. The curtain tore in two so that people like us could approach God like a child approaches their father. Notice, too, that this is a section of names here in Mark. Simon, Alexander, Rufus, Elijah, Mary Magdalene, Mary, James, Joseph, Salome. This should remind us that God saves people. He saves individuals who have families. People who seem to be known by Mark's audience. People who all most likely had become Christians, Mark mentions here. So these are some of the names that Jesus took with him to the cross. Paul Tripp says, Jesus took names to the cross. He took your name, Christian. He took mine. And we all know people by name who don't know Jesus. And we want nothing more for them that they would repent and trust in Jesus. You no doubt know people who are not Christians. And you have been faithfully praying for them. And you have been taking their name to Jesus and praying for them by name that they would repent and that they would trust in Jesus. And we want to join you as you pray for these people that you love by name. And so here's what we're going to start doing as a church starting today and into the new year. We're going to be praying for people by name. I'm sure you've all seen our wall out there that had our post-it notes on it where we asked you to put up where you have seen evidence of God's grace here at Grace. And we have filled up the walls over the last, I don't know how when we started it, last summer, this past summer maybe, I can't remember. But you saw all of those notes, post-it notes on the wall. And if you looked out there this morning, they're all gone. There, there may be one or two that have been put back up there because here's what I want you to do now. I want you to take a post-it note and write down the name of someone that you know is not a Christian. Just put their first name. Don't put their last name. Just put their first name. God knows. No last names. Just put their first name. Write down their first name. Someone that you've been praying for to come to Jesus and stick it on the wall. And then whenever any of us walk by, let your eyes go to one name and just pray a quick prayer. God, open their eyes. Save them. Whenever any of us walk by, take your Sunday school classes by there. Take your board meetings that you have and take a moment and say, let's go pray for those names. Take your uh, classes, take Awana, take gyms, take the youth group by and say, let's all come and pick a name and let's all pray for these people. So write down the first name on a post-it note, stick it on the wall, and every time you walk by, pick a name, don't pick it off, leave it up there, pick a name and take that name to Jesus in prayer. 
You just walk by and pick a name. Bill, Sally, Bertha, Darkon, and pray that Darkon would come to know Jesus. Jesus took names to the cross. And we want to take names to Jesus and ask him to save them. And so pray for one of these people each time you pass by. Take their name to Jesus in prayer. And then maybe one day too, they will be able to say, Jesus loves me, this I know. And the reason any sinner can say that is because of what Jesus endured on the cross. Jesus breathed his last breath so that you and I could breathe and exhale and relax so that we could let out one giant exhale that it is finished so that we could say, sins forgiven, justice satisfied, righteousness imputed, burden lifted. It is finished. Mark briefly tells us in verse 37 that Jesus breathed his last breath. But in John's gospel, John tells us that Jesus cried out right before he breathed his last. He cried out, it is finished. The phrase, it is finished, is one singular word in the Greek language, tetelestai. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about this one word, tetelestai, which means it is finished. He said, an ocean of meaning in a drop of language, a mere drop, for that is all we can call one word, tetelestai. Yet it would need all other words that ever were spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. Finished. It was a conqueror's cry. It was uttered with a loud voice. There is nothing of anguish about it. There is no wailing in it. It is the cry of one who has completed a tremendous labor and is about to die. And before he utters his death prayer, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, he shouts his life's last hymn in that one word, Tetelestai. An ocean of meaning in that one word. Jesus accomplished all that he came to do. And as soon as he shouted, it is finished, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, thus opening the way for people like us. Think about it. People like us. So that we could be welcomed into God's presence. Jesus said, it is finished. And you know what? That's exactly how David ends Psalm 22. Did you know that? Psalm 22, which is really all about Jesus, ends with the Old Testament version of it is finished. Listen to Psalm 22, verse 31, the last verse in Psalm 22. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That he has done it. Psalm 22 ends with the Old Testament version of it is finished. 
verse 31 is telling us that the gospel will go forth to the nations and they will testify to the fact that Yahweh has accomplished it. In other words, that Jesus has accomplished redemption. He has done it. He has finished it. Jesus accomplished the redemption of his people. And so David in Psalm 22 cried out, it is finished. And Jesus took these words as his own on the cross. The last words quoted in Psalm 22, the last verse, Jesus takes as his own. He accomplished redemption for his people as he was nailed on the cross. And that means that Jesus will never forget you. As the prophet Isaiah tells us in chapter 49, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even if these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. God will never abandon us. God will never abandon you, Christian. But sometimes, if we're honest, it feels like God has abandoned us, right? Sometimes it feels like God has abandoned you because life becomes a nightmare, a recurring nightmare, a bad dream, and you feel like God has abandoned you. And Jesus felt this too on the cross. And that's why Jesus cries out in a loud voice in Mark Verse 34, and he quotes verse 1 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is not questioning his father as to why he's being forsaken. He's quoting Psalm 22 and fulfilling it. In his humanity, Jesus is feeling what David felt in Psalm 22. It feels like Jesus is being abandoned by his father, but he isn't. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 and fulfilling it. It feels to him as if his father is abandoning him, but God is not abandoning his son. Jesus felt like In his humanity, he felt like he lost his grip on his father's hand on the cross when he died in our place. He didn't. He was not abandoned by his father, but it felt like it, which is why he quotes David in Psalm 22. And when Jesus quotes Psalm 22, he's letting us know that ultimately Psalm 22 is about him. Now, yes, at the beginning of Psalm 22, David says that he feels abandoned, but we have to read the rest of Psalm 22. We can't just stop after verse 1. We have to read the rest. Psalm 22 starts with David feeling like he's been abandoned by Yahweh, feeling like he's been abandoned by the Lord, but it doesn't end there. We have to keep reading the rest of the verses. Many theological questions can be answered by simply reading the next verse. Or the next paragraph. Who would have thought? What does David go on to say after he questions Yahweh about being abandoned in verse 1? What does he go on to say? Psalm 22, verses 21 to 24. Listen, you might be surprised. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
For he has not despised, despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. Yahweh did not forsake. Yahweh did not abandon David. He felt it. But Psalm 22 tells us that God sustained him through his suffering. And so when Jesus asks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not saying that he has been forsaken by his father. He's saying that in his humanity, it felt like he was being forsaken because he was bearing the penalty of our sins. The father did not turn his face away. Let me say that again because that's what Psalm 22 verse 24 says. He has not hidden his face from him. The father did not turn his face away. Psalm 22 tells us that God the father did not turn his face away from his son. Rather, he heard Jesus' cry. He did not despise him, Psalm 22 says. He did not abhor him, Psalm 22 says. God the father did not hide his face from Jesus according to Psalm 22. And here's why. Because God the Father was never more pleased with his son Jesus than at the cross. The cross was in fact Jesus' ultimate act of obedience. So if ever God the Father could say, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was at the cross, the crowning point of his life. Not to mention the Old Testament sacrifices were a sweet-smelling aroma to God. So how much more was Christ's sacrifice a delight to God the Father? What does Paul say in Ephesians? Ephesians 5.2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Far from being something that God the Father looked away from, Jesus' death was a fragrant, sweet-smelling sacrifice. There is far more evidence in Scripture that Jesus' death brought pleasure to God the Father than God the Father looking away. I know we've always heard that. We've always heard that God had to look away. There's far more evidence in Scripture that his death brought God pleasure than having God look away. God was thrilled to see Jesus bearing the curse and paying the penalty for our sin. Why? Because it was the eternal plan of God the Father. It was his will to bruise and crush Jesus, as Isaiah 53.10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In fact, the word will in Isaiah 53 means pleasure or delight. The New King James translation captures this. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This was the moment. The cross was the moment in Jesus' life where God the Father was, if you will, proud of him, proud of his son. Everything that Jesus did throughout his life pleased God the Father, but this was the moment. Every other moment in Jesus' life was preparing him for. And if you read John Calvin and the early church fathers, they'll go out of their way to comment 
that this was Jesus in his humanity that felt abandoned. He felt as if God the Father had turned his face away. But if we're honest, the Bible never tells us this. And that's kind of important, isn't it? The Bible never says that God turned his face away. There is no scripture that directly says that God the Father turned his face away from Jesus. We have learned this from evangelical culture, not the Bible. Psalm 22 tells us that God did not hide his face from Jesus. Now, of course, we have a song that we sing that says it, don't we? And it's a great song, and I love it. It's one of my favorite worship songs ever. How deep the Father's love for us. That's one of, it's in my top five. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. The song says that God, God the Father turned his face away, but the Bible doesn't. And that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? And so what do we do with this great song? Here's what I think as I sing this song, which I really love except for that one line. I think how great the pain of searing loss. It's as if the father turned his face away. And, and I, in, my, in my mind, I go through, this is how Jesus felt. He felt abandoned, though he wasn't. So that's what I think as I sing it. In his humanity, Jesus felt that God had abandoned him. Here's what Jared Hood, a pastor, says about this. There's no clear straight statement in Scripture that the Father turned his face away. If the father-son relationship was separated at the cross, that would be huge. It would be the core meaning of the cross. You would expect it to be everywhere in Scripture. But of course it's not. Does the father turn his face away? The father gives his son to die, yes. He prays, please take this cup from me, yes. He bears the full weight of my sin, yes. But he has not hidden his face from him. Psalm 22, verse 24. Town and song is beautiful, and the metaphor admits to other meanings. I can sing it with a bit of double think. The father appears to turn his face away by giving his son over to execution, but actually sustains him through his suffering. As Jesus bore the full weight of sin, he was sustained by his God, and the Father was never more pleased with the Son. And so the whole idea here, Grace, is propitiation. If God turned away from Jesus, he couldn't look upon his sacrifice and be pleased. If there's any turning away at all happening at the cross, it's Jesus turning away God's anger at our sin. The biblical word is propitiation. It means the turning away of wrath by an offering. In relation to our salvation, it means satisfying the wrath of God by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. You look upon a sacrifice and your justice is satisfied and your wrath is appeased. This happened at the cross. God looked upon Jesus. He did not turn away. And his justice was satisfied and his wrath appeased. His wrath was turned away. 
Now, we don't have time to unpack this. So if you're interested, I can email you some links if you want or read some commentaries. The commentators are divided on this of what this means. And so I, in, I'm in the correct view. Um, so uh, you can be on the other team if you want, but this is the cool kids table. No, they debate on this, okay? Here's the bottom line now. Whether you think the way I do or not, which is how I used to think. I've changed my position after studying it over the last several years. I've changed my position. So I was over there and now I'm over here. Regardless of what you think, the bottom line, when we look at the cross, is this simple yet wonderful truth. Jesus loves me. This I know. And when you suffer and it feels like God has abandoned you because your life feels like one recurring nightmare and a bad dream, you can still say, Jesus loves me. This I know. When life feels like a nightmare and you're so confused as to why what is happening is happening and why God in his goodness and sovereignty is allowing what is happening in your life to happen, you can still say, Jesus loves me, this I know. You will reach a point at some time in your life where it might be difficult to decide which is reality and which is nightmare. But the cure to some nightmares is not to be found in medical journals. You look for it under Psalm 22 to be found in God's word. You look for it at the cross. Psalm 22 is as real and raw as it gets. There's no Christian veneer here. There's no super Christianity. There's no, I'm blessed, brother. None of that business in this psalm. It's real and it's raw. There's pain, there's doubt, there's questioning, there's fear, there's sorrow, there's darkness, there's sadness, there's agony, and it's no wonder why Jesus quoted this psalm while on the cross. We don't know all that was happening at the cross because there's a lot of mystery that our finite minds cannot grasp. There are layers and depths that we will never scratch, but we do know this when we look at the cross. God loves sinners. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness that the last verse in Psalm 22 declares will be preached to the nations. Jerry Bridges says this, however, as we contemplate with wonder Christ being made sin for us, we must always keep in mind the distinction between Christ's sinlessness in his personal being and his sin-bearing in his official liability to God's wrath. He was the sinless sin-bearer. Though he was officially guilty as our representative, he was personally the object of the Father's everlasting love and delight. Even as Jesus hung on the cross, bearing our sins and enduring the full fury of God's wrath, he was at the same time the object of his Father's infinite, eternal love. Should this not make us bow in adoration at such matchless love that the Father would subject the object of his supreme delight to his unmitigated wrath for our sake? We should bow in adoration because what Jesus did on the cross actually moved us to the place where we 
now become and are the objects of God's supreme delight. Because of Jesus, God loves us with the same love that he loves Jesus. God loves each one of us just like he loves his own son, as if we were his only child. And so now, we have every right to be in God's presence as Jesus does now. That's what union in Christ brings. Christian, you have just as much right to be in God's presence as Jesus does. That's why the doctrine of union with Christ is glorious. We have every right to be in God's presence as Jesus does. It's amazing. If God gave his son up for you and let him die a horrific death for you, then he will never give up on you. Even though it may seem like he has abandoned you, he hasn't. Even when it feels like he is not listening, he is. If God gave his son up for you, he will not give up on you. Even if it feels like he has, God will finish what he started. When Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross, he was saying that he loves you and he will never be finished with you no matter what you do or how far you run or what you're feeling. Jesus will never abandon you. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. Even if your life feels like a nightmare, God has not abandoned you. He doesn't abandon his children. He didn't abandon Jesus on the cross, and he'll never abandon you. God will never forget you. Again, as the prophet Isaiah tells us, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will never forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Christian, your name has been engraved in the palms of Jesus' hands. Your name has forever been tattooed on Jesus, forever tattooed on his heart. He will never forget you. Bow in adoration today, and then let's go share this good news with others. Jesus loves me. This I know. Let's go share that with people who don't know. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed at your kindness and goodness that you would give up Jesus, the object of your love, and you would hand him over in our place to be on the receiving end of your wrath for our sin. May we bow in adoration today and say, what kind of God are we dealing with here? One who has gone to these lengths to save sinners, adopt them into his family, and welcome them in his presence. We are overwhelmed. Thank you. We worship you. All glory to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.